0: Thank you for making the effort to come out and uh, I want to just go through real quick and show you a few things about the work in Spain and elsewhere because as you can see Spanish besides Mandarin Chinese is the language spoken by the biggest people group in the world after Mandarin Chinese and so when you learn the Spanish language doors open for you everywhere uh, well not in Africa or the Middle East maybe. But there are a lot of countries that you can go to and speak um, Spanish. And we've been in Spain since 1986. Spain has 46 million people in it now. And there are 98% professing Roman Catholic. Of that, 20-some percent are actually practicing. So most people don't practice it. They're just Catholic when you talk to them about God. And The rest of the time, they practice agnosticism or atheism. They live like God doesn't exist. So Catholicism is just their excuse to keep you from talking to them about God. This is, one of, this is where we were up in the north of Spain. This is a temple built to the Virgin Mary in the north of Spain. And there's an image of her in there that people line up to go uh, kiss. And I cannot understand why in the days of AIDS and so many communicable diseases... People will sit in line for an hour to go up and kiss this stone that the person in front of them just kissed. I thought about hanging a sign on it saying, danger, the last person that kissed this had AIDS. Or something, <laughs> But uh, you see the mischievous side of me now. This is the mountainous province that we worked in when we were there. We were in this province for 16 years doing pioneer work. There was no evangelical church in this province anywhere. And uh, a lot of it's very difficult to reach. This is not where we were. This is just one of the mountain villages. We were in the capital of the province, but we covered, we went to every town and village and house all through the mountains up there twice, covered the whole province, every place in it that takes about a year to do it with uh, literature tracts or that Gospels of John, that kind of thing. This is another view what the province looked like where we worked at the beginning. This, this province was. It didn't have foreigners in it, because it wasn't Barcelona or Madrid, and it's not on the way to anywhere. It's just a mountainous province, and the people that live there were not used to seeing outsiders. So when we walked down the street, people just stood there and stared at us at the beginning, like we were from the planet Mars or something. You know, they had to get used to the idea of foreigners being there. And uh, the houses, this is a typical mountain house, but also we found that the hearts are... Pretty much like the houses. They're very hard. They give ground very slowly. They resist the gospel. And they act like this fellow here. They can be extremely stubborn and resistant. Uh, But when you win somebody over, when the Holy Spirit convicts them, and when they trust the Lord, then they're in it for the long haul. Because they come around all the way. This is where we first... Met This is a, the little chapel there in Huesca, up in the north. That man with the tie on back there is one of the men who got saved while we were working there, and he's one of the elders in that church now. There are two Spanish elders in this church, and that's where they meet. They usually have a piece of land. Unless you're the Catholic church, nobody else has a piece of land with a chapel on it or a church building. You usually meet in these kind of what the states people call storefront churches. But that's all there is outside of the Catholic Church there. Then we moved after 16 years leaving the the church established and functioning with the Spanish elders there by the grace of God. And uh, we moved down to Seville. You can see how far that is. That's like 14 hours driving. Spain is bigger than maybe you thought it was. And uh, so we went literally from one end of Spain to the other. And that's where we're working now. This little church had started. Uh, back when we were working up in the north, but they've been through their ups and downs, so we're there trying to help them out, and so I, I, I'm there helping with uh, Brother Lucas. He's my Spanish co-worker there, but from there I go out, as you already know, and travel to other places. But Seville has a million people in it now. It's a big city. It's the third biggest city in Spain, and uh, this, the people there are very uh, superstitious. They love their images and their idol parades and a lot of other things too. I'm sure you know about the flamenco uh, in the south there. This is the the river that goes through the city. It's navigable from the sea. It's about an hour inland where we are. And so we get the container ships from the ocean all the way up where we are. Back in the day, as they say, when the The Spanish explorers and conquerors were in the New World. They took the gold and the galleons and took it back to Spain. They took it to that tower you see over there. That's called the Golden Tower. And they offloaded it there, and there's a mint about a block in where they took it and uh, made coins out of some of it. But most of it went on to Rome, to the Catholic Church. Spain kept some gold reserves, and then when they had the Spanish Civil War, uh, the Russians uh, who were supporting the elected Spanish government, which was, um, had communist leanings, they said, well, you know, you never know how this war's gonna turn out. They might, uh, the other side might win and you might lose all your gold. You better give it to us and let us keep it for you until the war's over. So the Spanish sent all their gold to the Soviet Union, to Russia, never to be seen again. So, they don't have much. They looted the New World and took everything away, you know, but they don't have it anymore because it, it's all gone. This is where, this is the cathedral built before Columbus sailed to discover this part of the world. Actually, the people that lived in this part of the world had already discovered it, you know, but that's what they say. So, uh, he's buried there, by the way. That's another story. He traveled more after he died than he did while he was living. They moved him around from Spain. <laughs> to Santo Domingo, uh, and then from Santo Domingo back to the north of Spain, and then down to Seville. So he, he sailed the seas again after he had died. These are the what we just finished having in Easter week. They call it Holy Week. I don't know where they get the idea that it's holy. But at any rate, they have these huge idol processions. This one is of the virgin, the Macarena, they call her. And that's that Archway that she's coming through is two blocks from where our chapel is. So we get all of this up close. This is what they do. And it looks like uh, they came down from Alabama. <laughs> you know, but, but actually they did this. This is where all of this started. They wore these things because they took uh, people out and burned them at the stake and tortured them publicly and all of that, and they didn't want anybody to know who was doing it. So to preserve the identity of the people who were doing that during the years of the Inquisition, if you've never read anything about the Inquisition, you owe it to yourself to find out what was going on there. And, that, and this is what they did. So every year at Easter week, they have these huge processions. You can see the, it's like a float. We have floats and parades here, but there you see it at the back with all the candles on it. They don't have floats. They have these platforms with the, with the images, the idols on them. And they are worshiping them and praying to them and and calling out to them. And some of the women have fainting spells and all this when they go by. (coughs) This is not something that's done in a corner that only a few people know about. You don't see this in the States because they can't get away with it. But where Catholicism prevails and they can do what they want to do, this is it. This is what they do. And you say, well, my friend, he's not a Catholic like that. Well, but your friend, he might not be. But the, the Catholic Church lets American Catholics pretty much do whatever they want to so that they'll stay in the church. They, they cut them a lot of slack. But the Catholic Church and its beliefs and practices are all very well defined, and your neighbor does not define what Catholicism is. It's already very well defined. And this is what they do when they're allowed to do it. And there they are again. This is some of them. But they're like, this is like... Um, how can I describe this? It's like universities. Each university has its colors or, or, or basketball or football teams. They have their school colors. Well, this is the way they are. Each group is a devotee of a certain, um, they call them saints. Or, and so they all wear the color that goes with whatever their group is. They're called, uh, I don't know what they're called in English. We say confraternidad. I don't know what that is in English. Maybe Eddie can figure it out for me. I don't know what that would be. But anyway, it's a group that are devoted, all of them to the same saint or the same idol. And uh, this is the way they go. And sometimes they're barefooted and they put chains on their feet. Or they wear uh, shoes and put pebbles and sharp objects in their shoes to do penitence while they're, they're punishing themselves, hoping to be forgiven for their sins and this is right two blocks outside of this is the same wall that that archway was in this was built back in the days when the moors occupied spain and and seville was a fortified city and so we see this every time we go to meeting this is inside our little bethel chapel where it's all set up for a sunday morning there and um there's some of the people from a few years ago Timothy's 20 uh, something now. He's standing there by Ruth in the front. So this picture is a little old, but at least you can see some of them before they, uh, the young people, you know, they're all like Hannah's over there on the left in, in a pink sweater. I and mean, she's grown and married now and has a child. This is uh, Lucas and Tomas. They're my two Spanish co workers. And uh, this is down in Gibraltar. This is about an hour and a half away. Gibraltar belongs to the British. And um, you have to have a passport to get in. It's like you just go into another country. You cross a line there with passport control to get into Gibraltar. And uh, they speak English and Spanish in the church there. They used to have all the messages in Spanish. Now they want to have them in English. So it doesn't, you never know what they're going to do. That's just the way it is. And that's the inside. That's on a Sunday morning when they uh, have breaking of bread. The churches, the evangelical churches in Spain are generally small. Uh, A big church would be like 40 or 50 people. Most of them would be like 20 or 30 people. If we have everybody there, we're probably in the 20-something. But there are some that are as little as uh, 8 and 10 and 15. They're scattered around the country, and growth is very slow and difficult. You don't go to a country like Spain to work if if you have to have instant results and a lot of them because you're just not going to get them. It doesn't come that way. You have to be as stubborn and persevering as they are. So then, because uh, Spanish opens the door, there's a lot of visits uh, since 1998 down to Central America and even to South America, to Peru and to Chile, where our son Joshua is studying. And uh, this is uh, the church in Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. People there on Sunday morning... uh, I go sometimes for a week in the fall and have a, spe- a week of special meetings, but they're mostly for the young, the young men who are learning to study. They want me to teach them to study the scriptures, go through a book, learn how to study the Bible. And they're preparing them for leadership for the future. A lot of them preach the gospel every time when I go down there after another year, there's another church. They're always constantly extending and working, and, and really, the churches are outgrowing their leadership. This is the problem they have. They're evangelizing so much that the need is to train men for the leadership in the churches. So when I go down there, I am occupied mainly with that. They have a camp now in the north of Nicaragua, and this is uh, from the first year that they had the camp, actually, 2013. And uh, this, is in a, this is a small assembly up in the church up in the north, Esteli. And uh, they started about five years ago. So there, it's a big city. It's got 200,000 people in it. This is the basic group that they started with. And every time you go, there's a few more people there. This woman, the second uh, from the right, uh, got saved a couple of years ago. Uh, We were there having gospel meetings, and she was one of the ones who came and got saved. And she was living with somebody. And broke it off with of them and, and trusted the Lord. This is another city in the north of Nicaragua, and you can see how they do the baptisms there. They don't have one of these. Is this where your tank is over here? Yeah, yeah. well, you just have to go down to the river there to do it, and uh, they they block up the river with rocks to make it rise up enough to, to have it deep enough to, to do the baptism, and so then people spread up and down. There were some more down here where I was taking the picture. Yeah, right, it's heated, yeah, yeah, solar heating, that's right, and this is where we do then the week of intensive studies. We have uh, three hours each morning, they have lunch together, and then we have another hour in the meeting, I mean in the evening, in one of the areas, and all these people come and they, they sit at these tables, we have the screen back there to put outlines up on it, and they're all taking notes, and I give them homework, and I give them a test at the end of the week, and they love it, you can't scare them away. They, they have this tremendous hunger for the word of God. This is over in Honduras. Uh, this is a group up there in uh, Puerto Cortes, which is one of the, it's the port city of Nicaragua. And they have the same kind of thing. When I went this last January, they said, okay, Sunday morning I was in a different church. And they said, we want you to come in the afternoon. We just want to have three meetings. In one afternoon, they want to have three one-hour meetings with a break between them. They don't want to go home. They want to have a meeting. They want to study the Bible. And if you cut them short, then they're complaining. This is another one. This is in uh, the, the north coast of, um, of Honduras. And this is where we had a week of intensive studies in January there for them. They said, how come you're doing that in Nicaragua and you're not doing it here in Honduras? So they organized it. They usually have every year about 40 young people that come. And this year they had 80 and the elders were trying to figure out what they were going to do with them. They come for a week, and you've got to put them up somewhere. They've got to have a place to sleep. The, the women in the church there feed everyone. And so this is the way it works. They didn't all fit inside. They had to set up chairs. That's outside the building. They're, you can see some of them looking that way. They're looking into the windows. It's like there's windows on the wall here, and they're all outside the building lined up out there looking in, and they have a loudspeaker out there. They can't all fit, and they're standing at the back of the door, and they put chairs, uh, plastic chairs, out on the street. And sometimes you can go to a place, you can call them at 10 o'clock in the morning and say, I'll be coming through there this evening, and they say, okay, we're going to organize a meeting. And it's like that. The, whole, the place is packed. They, they didn't have a, a week's notice, a month's notice. They had a few hours' notice, and they're all there. And they're standing in the door and in the windows, and, one, and they, they start at the meeting, and they say, okay, it's 7.15, if you get down before 8.30, we're going to make you get back up there. <laughs> this is the way they are, the hunger that they have for the Word of God. So here's the, some of the 80 young people that came for this week of studies. And they're having to take notes. They know they're going to have a test at the end of the week. They have homework every afternoon. Uh, this is another place where this is a, a community of people of African people who actually their descendants from the slave ships that fla- foundered out there and the, and the people who escaped the ships formed communities there in Honduras along the coast. These are the Garifuna people. And uh, they actually speak a uh, uh, native language of Africa, although they speak Spanish as well. And uh, there's some small churches among them. So I was able to visit them and be with them. Here's uh, some of the people there that were visiting with us that night. There's uh, one of the uh, women, who's, she's a teaching Sunday school to her uh, neighbors and her, um, some of the young people in her family. This is down in El Salvador. Where there's a, this is a place where there's a little uh, church there in, uh, I have to think where this is, southern El Salvador. And uh, they go out there and bring in the salt. It come, they, This is salt. This is what you eat. This is where they store it. The salt, that, well, I don't know where you get your salt from, but a lot of the salt that they sell is stored in warehouses like that. They bring it in in 50-pound bags from these salt flats. Uh, they bring it in in these huge uh, canoes that are made out of one tree. They just hollow out the tree, and they haul this stuff in. There you can see the, the boats back there, and they take the oxen out at high tide into the water, and they offload the salt into these carts. And take it into these warehouses. And then they package it up. And they sell it to different countries. And there's a nice little church in this village. uh, About uh, 80 people there. And when the first missionaries went there to preach. They went in fear and trembling. Because two men had already gone down into this area. This is about 60 years ago. Two men had already gone down there to try to preach. And they'd both been killed. So these others who went. I know them. They went in fear and trembling. But the Lord preserved their lives. And now... There's a nice little assembly there. Here they are. Here's their, um, one of the conferences. You see this brother in the white shirt there praying, uh, singing. He's one of the missionaries there. He's in his 50s, and his name is Craig Sayward. He just found out that he's got the onset of Parkinson's and Huntington's, both of them. And he can't be treated because the treatment for Parkinson's accelerates Huntington's. And the treatment for Huntington's accelerates Parkinson's. So he can't have any treatment for it. He's still preaching. He preached with me at, at Easter at the conference there. Preached the gospel. And he preached like a man on fire. Bless his heart. So you need to pray for him, Craig Sayward. And for all these other, this is just really quick. All the other places down there where they're preaching the gospel and they have this tremendous hunger for the word. We could close up the church here and everybody go down there. And everybody teach classes all the time. And it still wouldn't be enough. That's the situation. So when the Lord said, uh, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I'm not here recruiting anybody. Because that, the Lord has to do that. But I'll tell you this. The harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few. And uh, so it's a blessing It's a privilege to be able to serve the Lord in these places with these people that have so much hunger for the Word and are so responsive to it. Thank you for praying for us and taking care of us while we're out there. All right, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we're going to go right into the book of Ruth. In the time that we have left, we have a wonderful chapter in front of us, and you're going to be upset with me because we're just going to go through it. We have uh, 35 minutes we're going to go through what we can. Well, it's a school night and work night for a lot of people. Okay, I I see that look, I know that means I'm in trouble, pray for me. Okay, Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus for the opportunity we have to be together, to meet together, to study the Word of God for the liberties that we have, we pray that, that we would not be careless about them, that we would take advantage of them. We think about these other people in other countries who are so hungry for the word of God. And we pray that we who have it, so many resources in our language and so much freedom to meet, that your word would indeed do a great work in our hearts and that we would be molded into people who bring honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look into the scriptures tonight With this hope that you will indeed speak to us through your word. We're waiting to hear your voice. And we commit ourselves unto you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Ruth chapter 2. And we're just going to read the first few verses. Probably down to, let's see, we'll read down to verse 12 to start off with. The word of the Lord says, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husbands, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels, And drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother, and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. And we'll end our reading there, and we trust the Lord to add his blessing to the reading and now to the study of his word. The other day I was looking at, the, at a hymn, but I forgot to, I brought the hymn book up here, but then I forgot it and forgot to um, use it. I was thinking about chapter one, how she made that decision. And we have this hymn in the hymn book called, Oh, uh, Happy Day, that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior, and my God. I'm pretty sure that Ruth could have sung that as she was walking the rest of the way to Bethlehem with Naomi. So she had a wonderful conversion. Chapter 1, her resolve. She made a life-changing decision and commitment. She was steadfast. She stuck to it. She could not be convinced to turn around and go back. I often wonder today what would happen to half the people that say that they want to follow the Lord if we tried to do like Naomi did with her, if we tried to convince them to turn around and go back to the world. Suppose instead of us preaching and saying, come to the Lord, trust the Lord, and inviting them and encouraging them, suppose we said, there's the door, why don't you just leave? Go back to the world, go do what you want to. Eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? What are you doing in here? Suppose we preach like that. But Naomi's trying to get rid of her, and she is absolutely determined that she's going to stay. She's made a commitment in her heart. And as the book of Ruth uh, bears out as we read it, It was not something that was not thought out by her. She weighed it. She weighed the choices. She counted the cost, and she stuck to what she had decided to do. So that was a happy day for her. But now we come to chapter two, and this is her unselfishness. Remember, chapter three is her trust, and chapter four is her honor, R U T H. And so here we have her unselfishness. Chapter two: lessons in character. We see she had a beginning. She made a wonderful decision, but when she got to Bethlehem, there was a lot to do. She got into the routine of life. She was living in a a town where she was a foreigner. Everybody knew who she was. Who's that damsel, says says, um, Boaz when he comes out to the field. And the man says, the overseer of the workers, he says, Oh, that's that Moabitish woman who came back with Ruth. They knew who she was. She's out there working, and we're going to take a look at that. We're going to see many things about the character of Ruth, a character that, that shows, in fact, and her testimony, her works and her testimony, along with her character, demonstrate that what she decided in chapter 1 were, in fact, was, in fact, a reality with her. So we have her, first of all, gleaning in verses 1 to 3. I know some of you want the outline, so I'll give it to you. <clears throat> she's gleaning in verses one to three. Then we see her meeting with Boaz in verses four to 14. She's meeting with him. and they converse for the first time. She doesn't even know who he is. Then we see her returning. She finishes her work and returns back home to the house where Naomi is. In verses 15 to 18, she's returning. So she's gleaning, she's meeting. She's returning, and then when she gets back in verses 19 to 23, she's conversing with Naomi. Naomi's asking her, where did you glean? What did you do? And they talk together. They have a, a very important conversation at the end of this chapter. Okay, so let's come back. You have the outline now. Let's come back to the first section where she's gleaning. And I want you to notice with me, in verse 1, the first thing it does is he puts out there before us this kinsman. We, when we first read it, you see, this is our problem when we read the Bible. <clears throat> we lose, when we're familiar with it, we lose the sense of surprise. We already, it's like we're watching a movie we already know. It's a story we already know. And so we already know what's going to happen next. And we forget to be surprised. We should stop and think about this. Naomi had a kinsman of her husbands, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And he was still living there. He didn't have to leave. And not only that, he was Elimelech's family. So why did Elimelech get it into his head like people do sometimes that they have to leave, that they have to do something? They they start obsessing on it, and, and they convince themselves that in fact it's the right thing to do when nothing could be farther from the truth. She had a kinsman, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Boaz means, in him, strength. Or the way they would say it in Hebrew, they don't, wouldn't often use the verb, is, in the middle of it. But that's what it means. In him is strength. But literally, it's in him, strength. And they take the verb out, and that emphasizes um, even more the idea that there's strength in him. So, this is this man's name. Now, if you'd like to see it, come with me real quick over into 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 21. Solomon's building the temple and he's setting up all the things. And and now we're to verse 21. On the outside, he set up the pillars, these two enormous bronze pillars in front of the temple. You have um, graphic representations of that, I believe, in the what do you call that room? Okay, the fellowship room, thank you. Anyway, I, I saw him in there. So he set up the right pillar, and he called the name Jachin, and he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. Strength, that's what it means. He called that one strength. The first one is he shall establish or he establishes, and the other one is strength. That's what he called those two pillars. They were pillars of, of testimony to the Lord, to the strength and the power of, of the Lord. But that's the exact same name that this man Boaz had. He the one of the pillars in the temple was later named after him. I think that's a curious detail. <clears throat> Boaz in the book of Ruth is a type or an illustration of Christ. He comes to us in this book As a man who is, eventually he's going to be revealed as the one who redeems her. But in order to do that, he has to be a kinsman. And he has to be a man of certain wealth and power. And he is all of those things. And this reminds us that in heaven, we have someone who wants to help us with our pitiful estate. But he couldn't do that by staying in heaven. I'm going to get ahead of myself and just tell you real quickly. What a wonderful thing it is that in order to be in this world to redeem us, to redeem us, he had to be our kinsman. He had to be related to us. And so God became a man. He came down and he took humanity upon him without ceasing to be God. 100% God and 100% man. He clothed divinity with humanity. And when he became a human being, he became related to us. And he could redeem us. He's the mighty man of wealth who had an interest in us before we ever knew him. I love the way this story reads. First of all, they present him to us in verse 1. And then now we're going to see how Ruth is guided into her first meeting ever with him. We see her in in verse 2 with her initiative. Now notice this right away about her character in verse 2. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, well, I wonder why, anybody, I wonder why nobody comes to um, bring us any gifts. Don't they know we don't have anything to eat? Uh, don't be, isn't there any love in this town? Uh, I thought Jews were loving people. Here, we're just sitting here. They know you're a widow and I'm a widow. What are we supposed to do? Why doesn't somebody, we have to pay for this house. We have to pay this. We have to. Why doesn't somebody bring it to us? Is that what she did? That's not what she did. What did she do? She said, let me now go to the field. Why didn't she say, come on, Naomi, let's go to the field. Naomi's an old woman. Nothing against old women. But Naomi is not in any condition to go out and work in the field. Ruth is a younger woman. She can go out and work in the field. Naomi does not say to Ruth, well, are you just going to sit here, or are you going to go out and find a job? She doesn't have to push her and prod her. Ruth says to Naomi, "Let me go out and work in the field." This was a provision that God had made. God's provision in the Old Testament that what we see clearly in the nation of Israel was not social security. It wasn't welfare. He made a provision for people. I want you to look at it with me quickly. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. I just want to show you two verses about this. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. That means the, the things that are left on the bushes or the trees or in the field, the things that fall to the ground. Don't go back and pick all of that up. That's what he's saying. Thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. He doesn't say you shall pick them all and take them to the poor and the stranger. He didn't say that. He said you leave them. Let them go get it. That's their job. Deuteronomy, chapter 24. Deuteronomy, chapter 24. And there's another text in in Leviticus that says the same thing, but I'm going against the clock tonight, so I'm going to skip over a few of these texts. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When thou cuttest down thy harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, now some of you don't know what that means. To beat It's not mad at the olive tree. They hit it to knock the olives off. They spread a A sheep or a cloth on the ground and then they shake it and they hit it and make the olives fall out onto the cloth. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. So this is God's plan. They they were to leave in the harvest. They weren't to go over and pick it clean. They were to leave things in the field. The fields of wheat. The fields of barley. In in the olive trees. in In the vineyards where the grapes were. Whatever it was. They were to leave food there. And the people who were needy, were supposed to go out then with permission from the owner. You see what happened to Ruth here. It says in, <clears throat> in chapter 2 and verse 7, she, the overseer says, She said, I pray you let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. She knew that this was the provision that had been made. She asked permission, can I glean in this field? Because it wasn't her field. And he said yes. So this is what they were supposed to do. This is God's provision, not welfare. Work. Go out into the field, glean. This is what he gave them to do. Boaz had fields that could be harvested because he had sown something. This is the law of the harvest. The law of sowing and reaping. If you don't sow anything, you don't have anything to reap. But he had stayed there all of those years. And when the Lord finally blessed his people and remembered his people and sent the rains that they needed and the conditions they needed. Boaz was out there sowing, and now harvest time had come. And because he had sowed in his fields, he had something to reap. The law of sowing and reaping. Cast thy bread upon the waters, Ecclesiastes says. Thou shalt receive it again after many days. So Ruth is out there. She's taking her initiative. She's not sitting at home waiting for someone to bring it to her. I think about uh, the mentality, the, the victim mentality that people have today and the mentality that they have that, that people, that they are, are owed, the society around them owes them something. The church owes me something. Uh, the government owes me something. The community owes me something. People should take care of me when they're able to do something. In the New Testament, we have it very clearly stated by the Apostle Paul. He taught the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. He said, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And to walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. Work to have lack of nothing. Not wait for someone to bring it to you. Ruth was not saying, well, when's someone going to come and visit She said, there's the fields, there's the harvest. Let me go out. I'll do the work. And that was hard work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. This was so important to the Apostle Paul that in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, he revisited this subject and he gave even stronger teaching on it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Verses 6 to 12, he said, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some Uh, There are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. There it is. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is what God wants. I've said on many occasions to, to people, men in different places in the world who are Uh, out of work. I said, you're out of work. Okay, here's your job. Until you get a job, your job every day is to get up and be out from 8 o'clock in the morning, whatever working hours are, from 8 to 5, your job is to be out looking for a job. That's your employment. You get up, you get dressed, you get out, and you do that. This is your job. Find anything to do. Look, I'll give you an example even of an unsaved man in our village in Spain. He studied law. He's a he has a degree in law. He can't find a job. You want to know what he's doing? He's working with a garbage truck. He went and took a job with the garbage truck. He says, I'm not going to sit home and do nothing. Oh, I'm not going to work for the, I'm not going to pick up garbage. That's beneath my dignity. I don't do jobs like that. The unsaved are sometimes a rebuke to us. I want to tell you this. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, if any man provide not for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. You say, oh, but that's talking about widows. Well, that's talking about he's applying it to widows. The truth is much broader than the application that he's given in that point. The truth is broader than that. It's it's like a magnifying glass. It focuses the sunlight down onto a little spot. Did you ever do that when you were growing up? Try to burn things in the magnifying glass? I confess I did. So you have all of this sunlight. And you hold the magnifying glass there. And it it, uh, focuses all of that sunlight into one little red or orange dot there. And then we know what happens. And some of us used to put it on each other. This is the truth. And the abuse of context. Context is when a truth that is broader, it's like the sunlight, it's lighting everywhere. But that truth is being brought to focus on one particular point. And so in 1 Timothy 5 8, he's bringing the truth of the necessity for a man to provide for those of his own household. That's the man's job. He's the provider. He's supposed to do that. That's what God has given him to do. And he says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. You have denied the faith. Because the faith is not, I believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, I believe that God uh, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe that the Word of God is inspired. Some of us have got the faith reduced down to what we call the fundamentals. Let me tell you something what the faith is. This is the faith. Jude chapter 3, or Jude verse 3 says, the faith... Once delivered to the saints. It's all of this. Everything that God has taken the time and the trouble to reveal to us is the faith. And there are no secondary doctrines. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable. Teaching them, said the Lord Jesus himself, to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Nothing secondary there. This is the faith. To deny the faith... Means to deny the teachings of Scripture. Scripture teaches us to be responsible. Scripture teaches us to work. Scripture teaches us to provide. Scripture does not teach us to live in a welfare state. And when a person uh, takes the victim mentality and sits back and lets life go by and depends on other people to do for him what he should do, he is denying the faith. And it might be his mother, it might be his wife and children. It might be whoever in his family. This is what scripture says. So, Ruth worked. And in this I see her character. And when I look at her character, I see the character of the Lord Jesus. Don't you? Mark ten forty-five. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve God. And to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. Some of us need to wake up. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve. The Christian life, the essence of the Christian life, of brotherly love, of love for God and the practice of the faith is to get outside of oneself and to live for others. To live for the Lord and to live for others, to give. More blessed it is to give than to receive, the Lord Jesus said. And so here's a woman who has not been educated on all of the things that we have in the Scripture, and yet she's a giver. Look at her. She's a worker. She cares about her mother-in-law. She wants to provide for her. Who taught her that? What apostle did she read? What prophet did she read? She's an ignorant Gentile woman who never saw the Scriptures, never saw the Holy Scriptures. But I'll tell you what she did see. She saw the word, she saw the work of God in her heart. And we see it in her. She saw the true and living God, she placed her faith in him, she identified with his people, and God did a work in her, and naturally she had a loving concern and a desire to work and be responsible and not to sit around and wait and see what people would do for her. So I love this second verse. And what she says, uh, let me go and glean uh, after him in whose eyes I shall find grace. This is the first time we find the word grace in the book. It's three times in chapter two. And the word bless is also three times in chapter two for the first time in the book. There's no blessing in chapter one. There's no grace in chapter one. They're in the far country. They're away. They got out of the will of God. There's death and loss and sorrow and pain And they have to repent and turn around and come back. But when they get back, now we start finding these words. Blessing and grace and provision. There it is. And it was there, dear brother and sister. It was there all the time. But they left it. So they came back to it. So she goes out. Her mother-in-law says, go, my daughter. She goes out, in verse, two, uh, verse 3 says she went and came and, and gleaned in the field. And it says her hat, that means it just happened, it, uh, her chance, or uh, what's the word we would say in English? Uh, coincidence. We say it was a, by coincidence, she happened to glean in the field of this man named Boaz. And there he's named the second time. Because God is watching all of this from heaven. And I can just see him leaning over the balcony of heaven and looking and saying to the angels, now just watch what field she's going to go into. You know who this is. It must be a wonderful thing to see things from heaven with the Lord's perspective as they unfold down here. We see one step at a time. We see so little. We know so little. And yet when God's providence, when his kind and loving care for us is unfolding, we're, when our heart is in the right place with him, he's going before us and opening up and preparing the way. She had no idea. She went into the field to glean barley. And she met the man who was going to be her husband, and she didn't even know it. He went into the field to see what was going on, and he saw a poor foreign woman, a poor Gentile woman who come to glean and He didn't run her away like so many of the Jewish Farmers would have done. Tell them to go to another field. Don't glean here. If we let her come, then everybody will come. He wasn't that way. A simple act of kindness he had. My daughter, he said to her, stay in this field. He spoke to her with respect. He didn't say, hey, Chickadee. (laughs) Uh, Well, hello. (laughs) He didn't try any one-liners on her. He treated her like a, a daughter with this uh, genuine, godly affection. We see in him really an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile, this man, Boaz. So she's going looking for barley. He's going to see how the harvest is going in his fields. And there they meet. And neither one of them had the other one in mind. They weren't going out to a singles group to try to see if they could find their marriage partner. Now, I'm not again. I'm going on Friday So, don't worry. I'm not against meeting together. But the purpose is not to shop. I might as well say it clearly. (laughs) The purpose is not to shop. She happened to go into the field, and for the second time it says, Boaz, who was the kindred of Elimelech. So there's the gleaning. There she is with this coincidence. And now we come to the meeting between her and Boaz. Boaz comes and he inquires. Uh, right away he comes out of the field, he greets the men, the men greet him. You notice how he brings the Lord right into his conversation. He's a spiritually minded man. The Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. This is the way they talk to each other. This is a a model of employer-employee relations. A godly man who's greeting with kindness and spirituality his labors and they're answering him, the Lord bless thee. Now, why would they say that? Well, you say, well, they're just being polite. Well, they said it, maybe they were just being polite. It is polite to talk that way. But they had a good relationship with him. I figure they were not underpaid workers. He was taking care of them. I know men like this, Christian men who, are, who have businesses. And the people who work with them, I know one particular in Nicaragua, who has a, he's a subcontractor for uh, the National Electric Company, and he has hundreds of employees working for him. His is the only electrical company in Nicaragua that doesn't have a union. The unions can't get in with him because he takes such good care of his employees. They don't have any need for the union. They're better off than all the others that are with the unions. And when they come to work, every morning he has a devotion. To start the day, he's got all of his employees in there and they have a devotional together and a prayer and then he sends them out to do their job. So there are people like this that still are that put the Lord first. He comes and he he greets his workers and he already knows all of them. And the first thing that happens is his eye falls on this woman out in the field. He said, Who's that? He's observant. Who's that damsel? Who's that young woman? Isn't that good? He knows his workers. He knows who's who's supposed to be in the field. He sees someone who isn't, and he asks right away, "Who's that?" He wants to be informed. Well, now the overseer or the supervisor, we would say today, uh, he anticipated this question. He knows what kind of a man Boaz is. He knows he's observant. He knows he's not going to stay in his house. He's going to come out to the field. He's going to be out there, and he's going to see how the work is going. And so he's prepared. He said, oh, I'm, that's the uh, Moabitish woman that came with Naomi out of the land of Moab. I get tickled when I read verse 6. And he says, he came back with Naomi. He didn't say he came back with Mara. That's what she wanted to be called, remember? Bitter. She was still having her pity party at the end of chapter 1. But nobody ever, they all called her Naomi. They called her Naomi in chapter 2. They called her Naomi in chapter 3. They called her Naomi in chapter 4. Nobody ever indulged her on her little bitter thing. Came back with Naomi. And so now he's going to begin to talk to her. But before he does, before we get to verse 8, notice what the supervisor says in verse 7. She said, Let me gather, I pray, let me gather, glean and gather with the reapers. He said, now look, she's been at it all day. She came early and she has continued all day. And that last expression there means uh, that she rested only when it was time to rest. They have a a shelter in the field and there's a time where they have a few minutes of rest when they're out reaping so they, they can go sit and rest. And so that's the only time she did. He said, when all the others rested there in the shelter, she did. Now, if she had been clever and known ahead of time that Boaz was related to her family, she could have gone out there and said, uh, Boaz, if there's anything left at the end of the day for uh, your relative Naomi and me? Uh, could you have one of your workers bring it to us? <laughs> She's not that kind of person. She's not that kind of person. She's out there working. He said, look at this. She has continued from the morning until now. She wasn't out there uh, flirting around and batting her eyelashes and hoping that one of the young men would do all the work for her. She was a serious woman. She went out there to do the work. She wasn't looking around or talking to anybody. She was out there with her eyes on the field. She went out there to glean, and that's all she was thinking about, gleaning. And She was gleaning, and she was going to get a lot more than she bargained for, a bigger blessing than she ever could have imagined. So now Boaz speaks to her in verses 8. And nine, and he invites her to stay and, and there and to reap in his, to glean in his fields. Many of the men would have said, well, why don't you go over to the neighbor's field? He's got a lot over there. Try to get rid of the gleaners because that means more for me. But he didn't do that. He did a very simple thing that the Jew is taught in the Old Testament. He's taught to love the foreigner. Deuteronomy chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 19 verses 33 and 34. This has to do with what we already read about gleaning, but we might as well look at these two verses again. Um, Let's see, Deuteronomy. Well, it's not 33 and 34 because those are not there. (laughs) Not in my version anyway. Let's see if if I got the wrong chapter. I'll figure it out. All right, somebody can help me find it. We're going to go on. When you find it, it's where he says that you shall love the foreigner because you were a foreigner in the land of Egypt. And he tells him, and this is practical love. This is what he's doing. He sees a foreigner out there, and instead of trying to get rid of her, he feels compassion for her. Who's this? Oh, she's the one that came with my relative. Listen, daughter, he says, just stay. Stay in this field. Work. I already told the young men not to bother you. Stay in this field. And when you're thirsty, you drink from the water they're drawing. Here's the contribution of the young men. The young men are drawing the water from the wells for the people to drink. And young men today have an important contribution in the Lord's work. Their job is not just to sit and wait for the old men to die so they can have a turn. By then, they'll be old men too. They should be working as well. He says, drink of that which the young men have drawn. And she is just overwhelmed with the kindness of this man that he went out of his way to go and tell her, please stay in my fields and work here. She falls on her face. She bows down. Look at her humility and her gratitude. Look at her astonishment. And the, the language that she uses is, it reminds me of the language that we have when we speak to the Lord Jesus. Why have I found grace in thy sight? Who am I? that God should love me? Who am I that he should care for me? And here's the second time we have the word grace. Why? Why have I found grace? She's not asking for an answer to the question. It's her way of expressing astonishment that he would go so far as to say that that you would take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger, I'm a foreigner. Why would you even look at me? Why would you even talk to me? This is how she feels. She didn't say, well... Oh, thanks. I mean, it is our right, after all, to be here. I mean, it's our right. You know, it says it. Get out her. She didn't have the Bible. You know, she could have got it out and pointed the verse and said, "According to this, it's our right." People are this way today. They're obsessed with their rights about what other people should do for them. That verse was Leviticus, nineteen thirty-four. Thank you. I had that. That's what it. I had Deuteronomy, and it was Leviticus. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Jessica. I saw you over there looking. All right. Bless your heart, as they say in the south. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no unrighteousness. Oh, no, the verse before it, 33. And if a stranger sojourn with thee, In your land, you shall not vex him. So he's gone out and he's told all the workers, do not bother her. Let her work. I don't want to see anybody going over there reproaching her, telling her that she's a Moabitess and to get out. And I don't want to see anybody going over there and laying a hand on her for any other reason. He made sure everybody knew. Let her work. And she is astounded that he would treat her this way, but he, listen to his answer in verse 11 and 12, he says oh we know about you we know about you it's already been shown me, everything that you did, he says, for your mother-in-law, after the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother, he says and the land of your nativity, you come here to people that you don't know he's aware of it see her testimony, he had never met her before, but her testimony had gone before her. they knew who she was He knew about the Moabitess woman that came out. He had never met her, but he'd heard about her. Bethlehem was a small town. Word gets around. Everybody knew. Now, if she had something wrong with her character and her behavior, everybody would have known that. But look at chapter 3 and verse um, 11. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. This is her testimony. Her character. They knew what kind of a person she was. And when he says, the Lord recompense thy work, that's a wonderful verse. I I love this verse and I I love to use it to write um, thank you notes and to express gratitude to people for what they're doing. But when I read it in its context and I I think about what Boaz is saying, I say, boy, he said a mouthful, didn't he? He had no idea what he was saying. How was the Lord going to recompense her work? (laughs) He was going to give her to him. And they were going to have a child. And that child was going to be in the lineage of King David and going to be in the lineage of the Messiah. The Lord recompenses thy work and a full reward be given thee. They had no idea what they were talking about. God can go much farther. Amen. And we, this is the way it is. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you ask or think. And this is what he does. But he does this for her. Why? Why? Because she's not in the house pouting and waiting for someone to do something for her. She's out working. And when she went out to do the only thing that she could do to provide for herself and her mother-in-law, God met her on the road. And he gave her a blessing beyond what she'd hoped for. She went out to get barley and she got Boaz. (laughs) (laughs) Under whose wings thou art come to trust. Isn't that a wonderful expression? It's in Psalm 36, verse 7. It's in Psalm 91. It's in Psalm 57. Under the wings, the shadow of the Almighty. Under the wings of God. The Lord Jesus said it in the New Testament to Jerusalem. He said, how many times would I have have gathered you to me as a hen her chicks? It means to take you under my wings. But you would not. The Lord wanted it. But they didn't. Well, there's no room in there for um, irresistible grace, and all of this kind of Calvinistic doctrine. This is the conflict of wills. How many times would I have gathered you to me? I would, the Lord says, but you would not. So it's a wonderful thing to be under the wings of the Lord, isn't it? We come to trust in him, and we get a lot more than salvation. Or is that, is that all you think you got? You got your sins forgiven, and that's it. <laughs> the psalmist said, Daily he loads us down with benefits. Some of them we see and identify immediately, and others we don't see until years down the road. So, uh, to summarize, because we got to finish up here, uh, they finish out their conversation, and when it's time to eat, he gives her food to eat in verse 14. She eats it, and it says at the end of the verse that there was left leftover. She ate enough to be satisfied, and there was some left. And what did she do with that? She took it with her. We don't know that here. We don't know that until we get down to verse 18. When she's back home with Naomi, and it says at the end of verse 18, she brought forth and gave to her that which she had reserved after she was sufficed. After she finished eating and was satisfied, she took that. She's thinking. What is she thinking? She's got a mother-in-law at home. What is she thinking? Oh, I've got this food to eat. Thank you. And just eat it all up. No. She's immediately thinking of someone else. This is the essence of Christian love. Think of others. Your plate is full. What about the other person? She's sitting there eating and she's thinking, what has my mother-in-law got to eat? I came back to this country to take care of her. That was her only objective in coming back. She didn't come back looking for her husband. She came back to to take care of her mother-in-law and to follow the living God there with her. This is what she was doing. And so she took that food and she took it back. But not only that, she took the food, she took what she had gleaned in the field in verse 17. She took all of that and she beat it out. You know, the barley, when they harvest it, it has the husk around it. And so they have to separate that from the, the grain of barley And so they beat it out. They thresh it. They have different ways that they do it. We don't have time to go into all of that. And some of it is throwing it up in the air. And some of it they have these sleds with teeth in them that they drag over it back and forth to separate it. And then they throw it up in the air and all this. She's having to do all this by hand. She doesn't have a threshing floor. She doesn't have a, she's a poor woman. And she's working by hand whatever she had to separate all this chaff, all the husk from the barley, and to separate it all out until she gets that barley. And it says here an ephah of barley. That's about 20 to 25 pounds of barley. And when she got home, what she put in front of her mother-in-law required her mother-in-law to do no work. She gave her the barley already clean. And then she opened up and took out the food that she has saved for her so that she could eat. Others. 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 Her horizon is not limited to her plate. If it had been, she never would have gone out in the field to start with. She's out serving. Her heart is a servant heart. And you see it. Her mother-in-law rejoices to take this food, and she says... Where hast thou gleaned today? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. She sees all of this and she brought back. She says, whoever took care of you, may he be blessed. That's the first time the word blessing comes out of the mouth of Naomi. Now the Lord's working on her, isn't he? He's softening her up. We're going to see this in the other chapters. He's softening her up. Blessed, whoever it is. And I love this. He says, where hast thou gleaned today? You know, we have to glean. The Lord has left us handfuls on purpose. He's left us things in the Bible that we have to go in here and glean. This is the field. We go in here by Bible study and we glean and we gather up the truths that he's left in this book for us. So you ask somebody about their quiet time. One of the ways you could ask them about their devotional reading is say, where did you glean today, brother? What, what field? Uh, where were you gleaning in Deuteronomy? Were you gleaning in John? Where were you gleaning? What field were you gleaning in today? What do you got? See, where did you glean? I love this answer because it is so innocent and so ignorant. She says in verse 19, the man's name with whom I wrought today, where I work today, is Boaz. (laughs) She doesn't even know who he is. She just said, oh, it's a man named Boaz. That's how innocent she was. And she had no idea. Naomi's the one who responded with great surprise. She says again, the second time the word blessing comes out of her mouth. Blessed be he of the Lord who has not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is near of kin to us, one of our next kinsmen. And she hasn't explained about the kinsman and the redeemer to Ruth yet. But now the light came on in Naomi's mind. Ding. The wealthy powerful kinsman. You went and gleaned in his field? Do you know who that is? That's Boaz. He's our relative. So they talk. And this is the other thing I like about the character of Ruth. Naomi doesn't say to her, uh, or Naomi says to her, where did you glean today? She says, oh, just out in a man's field. You know, some people, you have to drag everything out of them. They don't communicate. You get nothing uh, what'd you do today? Uh, I played my friends after school. Who'd you play? Oh, just friends. What'd you guys do? Oh, just stuff. Oh, we hung out. What did you do? Where did you go? What are you asking so many questions for? Is this an interrogation? Some people are closed books, they don't communicate. You can't look, a book that's open and a book that's closed. An open book and a closed book cannot have fellowship. There has to be openness and communication. And so This is what's happening. They're talking. This is what people do. They talk. Where did you go today? What is the man's name? Oh, he said this. She goes much f- farther than her mother-in-law asked her. He said for me to stay there and to, and to harvest with them, to follow them in the harvest all the way through. So they're talking it out. She's asking her mother-in-law for advice. What do you think? This is what this is. This is what he said I should do. She's putting it out there on the table. What are you going to tell me? She says, it is good, verse 22. It is good, my daughter, and thou go with his maidens, and they meet thee not in any other field. So what did she do? She stuck to it, to the end. Look at verse 23. She kept fast by the maidens of Boaz. There's that word again that we saw in chapter 1. She stuck Ruth clave to Naomi. She stuck to her. Now she's sticking by the maidens. She's staying by them and working in the field. To the end of the barley harvest. She didn't say, oh, he's our relative. Oh, that's it. We don't have to work anymore. I'll just get him to bring whatever the extra is by. And he could, Because after all, he should love us, right? He should take care of us, right? But it's not what others should do for you. It's what you can do. This is her character. To the end of the barley harvest, and not only that, the wheat harvest, because the barley's harvested first, and when they finish that long process, then they harvest the wheat fields. And she worked all the barley harvest and all the wheat harvest right to the end. She's a worker. I would have to say about Ruth, there's not a lazy bone in her body. She worked the harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That was her life. She wasn't seeking anything else. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the lessons in character we have from the book of Ruth. We give thanks for what we see in her, the transformed life, for her love and care for others, her willingness to labor we give thanks for what we see in Boaz as an illustration of the person of Christ. We give thanks to the one that we know, or the one who has changed our lives, and we're able to say of him tonight, in him is strength. He is a mighty man of wealth and power, and he has saved our souls. And we give thanks for him. We give thanks that God was willing to come down to the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus and become our kinsman to redeem us. And we pray that the grace and the blessing of God that we have received would transform us into those who are also willing to live, to serve, and not to be served. And so we commit ourselves to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for your patience.